blessing not only to this uh, congregation, but to my family and me personally. God loves you and has a plan for you. You know, Jesus tells us in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in me also. Well, unknown to me at the time, God's plan for my life started when I was 20. I was two years out of high school working part-time as a dispatcher and janitor for the Jericho Fire District. Now, one evening while I was sitting in the dispatcher's office, in walked the commissioner and an FDNY battalion chief by the name of Eugene Marmon, whom I had never met before. And the first thing out of his mouth was, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Kind of shocked, I answered, I don't know, work here or maybe be a fireman in the city. And he answered and said, no, your future is being a fire protection engineer and attending the University of Maryland. Well, never heard about that, so I looked into the program, and in 1984, I graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in fire protection engineering. That career path that God set me on led me to a job that would lead me to Linda, <laughs> love of my life for 24 years and counting. But even more miraculously, a path that would show me the way to Jesus himself. It was now 1999, I was 40 years old, and I had achieved all that I had set out to do. I had a loving wife, two young sons, a well-paying career as a professional engineer, and a newly built four-bedroom Victorian home on the North Shore of Long Island. Yet with all that I had gained, thank you very much, there was a void in my soul, something missing. I had arrived at the proverbial question of my human existence. Is this all that there is? It was around this time that a vendor that I do business with came to my office. He is a born-again Christian, and his constant praise for and camaraderie with Jesus Christ would make my eyes roll every time he came to visit, similar to the reaction I get when the Jehovah Witnesses come to my door. I felt embarrassed, actually, about how... Uh, I felt about him every time he came to our meetings, but I endured him, and he asked if I would please proofread a manuscript for a book he was writing. He told me that he greatly valued my opinion and trusted my review skills. He wouldn't tell me what the book was about, but after he so masterfully flattered my ego, I agreed, and as it turned out, he was writing a book about God, which should not have surprised me. Now, spiritually, my heavenly destination was supposedly guaranteed because, after all, when I was a baby, I was baptized a Roman Catholic. Beside that, I was a good person, a loving husband and father. As I read his manuscript, he talked about our sins, the coming judgment, and God's salvation plan for those who would put their trust and faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, our resurrected bodies, and how God would one day create a new heaven and a new earth. Many of these things I had never heard before, and he made, me, and he made his points by quoting verses from a Bible, a book that I had never read. But there was something very wrong with his message. It was entirely too simple. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. No need for good works to earn my way to heaven. 
No need to confess my sins and receive absolution from a human priest. No need to confess my sins and pray to the Virgin Mary or the apostles. Just have faith in Jesus Christ alone. Well, I decided right there and then I would purchase a Bible with the sole intention that I would not only prove him wrong, but also justify my denominational faith in the process. Starting with John's Gospel, I read through all the New Testament books with the exhaustive footnotes constantly directing me back to the Old Testament scripture verses, which I also read. The enlightenment that took place was actually unbelievable. I felt embarrassed actually about how uneducated and naive I was. Jesus and the apostles were Jewish. Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was our God also. I was amazed at the fulfillment of prophecies and could not believe how the Old Testament scriptures foretold of the coming of Christ, the eloquent summary by the author of the book of Hebrews in explaining the Old Testament requirements and traditions and how they all have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ, our great high priest, was astonishing. For the first time, I understood what the tearing of the veil in the temple meant, what Pentecost was, and the meaning behind the bumper sticker declaring my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Ironically, what I had originally set out to disprove had turned out to be just the opposite. Instead of justifying my denominational allegiance, it called it into question. Instead of relying on my own merits, the Bible convicted me of my sin. Instead of proving my friend's book wrong, it justified its message. But now, having been given eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus Christ was knocking at the door to my heart, and I found myself wondering if all that the Bible proclaimed and promised could really be true and trusted. Secular historical records have confirmed events in the Bible, including the existence of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter states, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again. We have seen his majestic splendor with our eyes, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. The prophets, the Psalms, the Gospels, the Epistles, the book of Revelation, all proclaim God's word to be inspired by God, inerrant, true, and trustworthy. These were all adults who had experienced what was seen proclaiming through faith what was yet to come, all the time knowing they were risking their lives and in fact were killed for their confession of faith. And while that alone should have been enough to convince me, that wasn't what finally led me to believe. As with all believers, it was by God's grace that led me to faith. And as I confessed my sins to him, who is faithful to give us, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, I ask Christ to come into my heart in the void that once existed, in my soul was illuminated and wonderfully filled by the God's power of his Holy Spirit. You know, for the first time in my life, I understood that I exist for his good pleasure, not mine. My previous self-exaltation of all that I had achieved was now humbled with an understanding that all I have and all that I am is his. Having been given eyes to see the endless grace of God in my life, even in light 
of my constant and current depravity and, all, and at times my unbelief and unfaithfulness, he remains a faithful, loving, and forgiving father. And going forward, I know now that we can have no greater purpose in life than to be blessed by God, to be his servant, delivering his message of salvation to those who are perishing, to let them know that God loves them and has a plan for their life, to show them the way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ alone and be saved from the coming judgment. So now to God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, be praise, honor, and glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you're our guest today, we are studying through St. Paul's little epistle to the Galatians. And we're still in the introduction, just our third message. And if you would open your Bibles to Galatians 1, verses 10 through 12, or you can look on the back of your sermon outline where we also have the text and a few other texts printed. This brief passage, so profound, continues to explain to us why Paul is writing this letter. And he says, starting in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So far the reading of God's Word. Suppose that you are a doctor and a patient comes to your office and they describe the symptoms that they are struggling with and you order a blood test and when you get the results of the blood work back, you realize that this fellow has acute diabetes. His pancreas is no longer producing the insulin that he needs. So what do you do? Well, you get out your prescription pad and you prescribe insulin and you hand him the prescription. And he says, insulin? I don't want to take insulin. You explain to him, he has to take insulin. His pancreas isn't producing insulin, but he can get it uh, and inject it, and he will live. He says, you know, doctor, let's be reasonable. This is the 21st century. There are many choices before us. I suggest perhaps I could take Tylenol, a double dose of Tylenol. I think that's much more reasonable. Perhaps penicillin. Why, yes, penicillin is a miracle drug. I'll take penicillin. And you explain to him one more time that unless he takes insulin, he will die. And he looks at you, and he says, why, you 
I think you are the most close-minded, bigoted doctor I've ever met. How dare you tell me that only insulin is what I need for my problem? Now, let me ask you. Here's the question. Is the doctor being closed-minded and narrow when he says insulin is the only way? Or is the doctor being loving to the patient because he's telling him what will, in fact, save his life? What do you think? A man named Terry Boland uses this illustration in his book, Reaching the Postmodern World for Christ. And he says that today, when you talk to people, it seems as though many people uh, respond to Christians the way this patient responded to our doctor. When you say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and they say, no, you are so close-minded. What do you think? We come today to a passage in the Bible where the Apostle Paul says that the Christian message, our message, is not narrow-minded. Instead, it is again like the doctor saying you need the insulin to solve your sickness. And when you say to people you need Jesus Christ, faith in Christ, the gospel of Christ, being united to Christ in His death and resurrection, you are like that doctor by lovingly telling people, sharing with people, preaching to people the message that they need. If we take apart this passage, you'll see in your sermon outline just three simple points from this text. The first is this, that we must share the gospel of God, not the gospel of man. The second point is, as you do it, live for an audience of one. Don't worry about being a man-pleaser. And the third point will be, he served you, and that's why you serve him. So, point number one in your outline. This passage falls on the heels of what Pastor Martin preached last week, where the Apostle Paul said, essentially, as Martin told us, dance with the one who brought you. And what did we learn? We heard the severe warning that the Apostle Paul gives to the church, that if anyone brings you another gospel, even if it's an angel, from heaven, or even if it's from us, if anyone offers you a different gospel rather than uh, the gospel of Christ, then let him be, and we learned a new word, what was that word? Anathema, accursed, cut off from God. And now he's, he's winding back to this same message, uh, which says, you have to believe the good news that I've brought to you. And he gives us in verse 11 and 12 the reason why. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, and the word gospel just means good news, the message of good news, that the message of good news that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean? in our text where he says this is not man's good news or man's gospel. And if you pay attention carefully, in the middle of verse 12, he gives us two reasons that amplify why this is not man's gospel. The first thing he says is that it's not from any man. 
And this means that it does not spring up from the imagination of men. What he's saying here, and I think if you pay any attention to what's going on in the world, you know that there are all kinds of religions that have sprung up out of the imaginations of men, right? When Joseph Smith put his face in the hat in upstate New York and, uh, and dictated what he called the, uh, docu- the, the Book of Covenants and the Book of Mormon, you know, it just sprang out of his mind. When L. Ron Hubbard told us about aliens and how we're from aliens, and he gave us what? Scientology. When Muhammad gave his message, he gave us uh, Islam. When the great philosopher Confucius put down his thoughts, it gave us Confucianism. And there are thousands of gurus and religious leaders who have their own ideas about religion. And even in the ancient church, Paul says, now these Judaizers have come. And the Apostle John says, there are these Gnostic thinkers who say, I have a secret. And if you learn my secret, you will get salvation, you see. And Paul says, there's all kinds of people out there who have their own ideas about what religion should be. Don't go after them. Because just as Tylenol is not the solution for diabetes, he says, so the religions of men, the vain imaginings of men are no solution to your sin sickness. And yet, I bet there's someone here, or you know a skeptic out there who would say, well, John, I do agree that all those other religions out there sprang from the imaginations of men, but I took philosophy 101 in college, and I took psychology 101, and you know what my teacher said to me is not only did all those other religions out there spring up from the imagination of men, but Christianity did too. After all, have you not read the great German intellectuals of the 19th century? Did you not study Freud? You know, when I was uh, a new Christian, uh, about uh, 20 years old, a a man I respected very much was cleaning out his library, and he had this book on his shelf called The Essence of Christianity. And he said, this book is one of the most influential books of the 19th century that radically affected the church of Jesus Christ. And he said, would you like it? And I thought, well, I would like, yes, I want to grow in my understanding of Christ and and the essence of Christianity. And so he gave it to me, and I started to read it with a yellow highlighter. And it was this this book by Ludwig Feuerbach. And Feuerbach uh, wrote about how, and I'm reading along, I'm reading along, I'm reading along, trying to grow in my relationship with the Lord when suddenly... I realized when the guy said this was one of the most influential books on the church, he did not tell me that it had one of the worst influences and most destructive influences on the European church in the 19th century, and that, in fact, Feuerbach despised the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of the apostle Paul, and he went on to write that it was but a fantasy that springs from the heart of men because men are weak. 
and men are limited, and men live in fear of nature, and so there is wish projection, right? And that's Freud, Feuerbach, and Nietzsche. That's wish projection that posits that there is a great God of the storm or the great God of love when you feel unloved. And so the, the church in Europe became weak and vapid and poor in many ways from this vandalism that was done to the gospel. Let me ask you, does Christianity just spring up from the imagination of men? And then Paul says that I did not receive it from the teachings of any man. And what he's saying here is that I didn't just follow a tradition. What we have is not just the traditions of men. And he means, look, he was quite famous, you know. He was a student of the great Gamaliel, the great Jewish rabbi, and, and Paul understood the traditions. But he says, this does not just come from traditions. Uh, uh, listen, I know that there are millions of people around the world who say, I'm religious because I love the traditions of the church. I actually read in the New York Times this year uh, from a fellow who wrote about being, and I'll use his term, who called himself an atheist Roman Catholic. And he said, I don't believe the Bible and the, and the theology of the church, but I adore the rituals and the robes and the candles and the cathedral and the choirs. And that's what's so important to me. And it runs deep in cultural souls uh, that, that uh, grandparents want their grandchildren to appreciate their traditions, and there's nothing wrong with appreciating your tr the traditions of your heritage. But please, the Apostle Paul says, what I got did not just spring from imagination, nor is it simply following the traditions that are handed down by someone else. Instead, what does he say at the end of verse 12? It came to me by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what the faithful church has handed down through the centuries to the world is the good news that God has come to this world in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I received it as a direct revelation from God, and I passed it on to you. And we read that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 earlier. What I received, I passed on to you. Paul teaches this again and again. Peter teaches it. John teaches it. What we received, we passed on to you. What we saw with our eyes, touched with our hands, we passed on to you. You home fellowship group leaders, you Sunday school teachers, you Bible study leaders in this church, do you have a sense with what the Apostle Paul, of the adrenaline that the Apostle Paul has at the beginning of the book of Galatians, when he says, I have a gospel that is real, that is true, that is life-changing. Sunday school teachers, when those children come into your classroom, I hope your heart is bursting with delight that you have a gospel, good news to give them, home fellowship group leaders. And we need more home fellowship group leaders. We need more small groups 
Wouldn't you love to be a small group leader? You gather people into your home week after week, and you open the Bible, and together you study the gospel of grace of Jesus. And you're giving away what you have received. What could be greater than that? We'll resource you. We'll train you. We'll pray for you. We will encourage you. We need more. And Paul says, I got this from Jesus. What did he get? Well, if you just go back to the very beginning of this chapter, verses 3 and 4, there are lots of different ways to talk about it, but verses 3 and 4, it says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Is there a better summary of the gospel than that? There are many, many wonderful ways. I suggest on the back of your sermon outline that you download the Two Ways to Live app onto your smartphone. You'll always have a wonderful track there. I gave you the little booklet uh, that I've written that I've used with so many people just to explain new life in Christ, but whatever it is, you could just read verses 3 and 4 and tell your neighbor or your friend or your colleague or your family member Jesus Christ came into the world to die for our sins and to save us from this present evil age, period. Let's talk about it. You didn't get this from the vain imaginings of men. This is not just the tradition handed down to you. This is the revelation of God. But before you share it with another person, the Apostle Paul does something beautiful. In all the intensity of this book, he models something for us in verse 10 that is exquisite. And what we see is that there are two things about yourself that you need to get right before you share this gospel that came from Jesus Christ. What does he say? He essentially says, point number two, live for an audience of one. Don't be a man pleaser. And then he says, and you also need to see yourself as a servant of Christ. So think about this for just a moment with me. Verse 10, do you notice what he picks up? He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? And I think this is really interesting because... Paul is honestly telling us that he has a choice. He says, I could just sort of go along with the Judaizers. After all, they're just calling people to be a little more committed and um, nothing wrong with that. I'll just go along to get along, and that way I'll be popular. And everybody will like me. And I like it when everybody likes me. However, he says, there is someone else whose opinion matters even more to me than those religious leaders over there. And who is that? It's God. And so he contrasts man-pleasing with God-pleasing. What does it mean to be a man-pleaser? Well, I think we all know. If you're like me, 
We all live with this deep um, uh, insecurity that says, I, I want to be liked. And I'm sad when other people reject me. And deep down, deep down, I relish the applause of other people. I'll never hit a grand slam in Yankee Stadium, but just give me, just, just give me some smiles and some appreciation and some approval from others. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be happy with that. And deep down, deep down, we fear the rejection of others and we long so much for the approval of others. Now listen, I'm an amateur. I'm an amateur psychologist. What do I know about why you are insecure? But it is very likely that almost all of us did not receive the kind of affirmation as a child that would have helped us know we are loved. In some places, we have experienced the rejection of our peers. Maybe it's your boss at work who just relentlessly hammers you with the frown and the disapproval of what you do, or it could be a spouse who doesn't accept you, or you're, you know, you're, you're 60 years old now, but your 90-year-old father or mother still has you under their thumb, and you just wish they would accept you. I don't know. It runs deep in all of us, a desire for approval to please men. You remember what it was like to be a teenager, don't you? The way you used to dress, the way you did your hair, the clothes that you put on, the way you carried yourself in order to be accepted by your peers. And teenagers, the, the older generation here still struggles with how we look and how we're accepted. We want to please men. My friend Jack Miller used to say, we have so many issues that make us, and he called them, approval sucks. We're just desperate to be liked. And so the fear of man and the people-pleasing impulses, they just run deep in our flesh. I know they do in mine. I'm at the front of the line. But Paul says here, there's someone else whose opinion matters to him more than the opinions of others. And who is that? Again, it's God. I, I, I realize there's probably some people here who would say, well, I don't worry about the opinions of men, and I don't even care that much about the opinions of God. That might even be you here today. And, and the Apostle Paul tells you that's a dangerous and precarious place to be. But instead, what he does is he says, I just want to please God deep in my heart. And we think back to the people in the Bible that have modeled this for us. Do you remember Joseph? Remember Joseph living in Potiphar's household and Mrs. Potiphar comes over and she tries to seduce him and she says, come to my bed. Joseph, come to my bed. And he, he resists, he resists. Finally, he says to her, listen, how could I sin like this against Against who? He says against God. Isn't that interesting? Because Joseph lives with a mind, with an eye, that he lives before God. 
Or remember just back a couple of months, we studied through the book of Nehemiah together. And wasn't it amazing to watch Nehemiah when Sanballat, his enemy, is coming against him? Or when all of Israel is angry at him? Have you ever had a whole bunch of people mad at you? Or when he's just standing alone on the wall? And every time, what does Nehemiah do? cries out, Lord, remember me. And he lives before an audience of one. He seeks to please God, even with Israel or Sanballat, angry with him. It does not matter. And of course, both of those guys, they are just pictures foreshadowing Jesus. Jesus who walked on this earth. And we are told in John 8, 29, that Jesus says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And Jesus is the perfect one who lived to please his Father in heaven. Now, you are not Jesus, and I am not Jesus, but do you understand this impulse inside of Jesus? And when the apostles teach that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, more and more we are to put off the fear of man issues of our life. And more and more we are to clothe ourselves with that same desire to live for the approval of our Heavenly Father. And we do it for the same reason Jesus did, because he is with me. You see, not to get him to like you, but because he does already like you. He already loves you. He gave his spirit to be with you. And so, your eyes are open and you live before God. What does it mean to be a God pleaser? Well, the very gospel that you preach is the message that frees you up to preach it. Did you hear that? This is some of you, this is a new idea. The very gospel that you preach frees you up in order to teach it. And uh, what I mean by this is that because Christ died for your sins and because the Father has adopted you into the family of God and because he loves you with an everlasting love, the opinions of people are second to the opinions of God. That's why he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, it's, it's the same thing. In every book he writes, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. Yeah. You, you don't do what you do in order to get him to love you. You do it because he already does love you. That's the message for the Christian. And you live before an audience of one. That's the best way to live. It's the most freeing way to live. Leads to point three. He served you, and now you serve him. And he says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And here you have one of the most critical components of Christian maturity. It has to do with identity. Identity. What is your identity? And Paul says here that we are servants of Christ. Now, 
If you're half awake a third of the time at North Shore Community Church, you begin to hear all of these marvelous uh, identity markers for the Christians. What are they? Um, we are children of God. Isn't that beautiful? We are children of God. Or we are called saints, holy ones, set apart for God. Or other times we are called beloved in Christ. Wow, those are pretty good titles. If you want to get your identity straight as a Christian, you can't go wrong with, I'm a child of God. I can't go wrong with, I'm a saint, a holy one set apart, a sinner saved by grace. You can't go wrong uh, uh, with, with these wonderful titles. But here he chooses servant of Christ. And perhaps this is one of the less glamorous markers that you need to know and need to hear, my friends. What is he teaching us when he identifies himself and identifies us as servants of Christ? It's at least this, when he chooses this word to describe himself. He shows us that once we embrace the gospel of Jesus, this change happens inside of us where we no longer live just to serve ourselves, but we live to serve Christ. Let's not miss this. I chose the Heidelberg Catechism question one, you know, because it's quoting from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 4. For you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Okay? The humbling verse of the Bible. A wonderful verse of the Bible. Do you hear it? For you are not your own. Like the servant on the auction block, you now belong to a master. You are a servant of Christ. And the reason, at least the reason I feel this so acutely is because there is a broad, in the Christian, wider Christian world today, a false gospel. It's called the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, that essentially is teaching, it's sweeping South America, it's sweeping Africa, it's big, why? It works so well with television. But what it teaches is that Jesus is your servant That's what it teaches. You come to Jesus, and then you tell Jesus what to do for you. And he becomes your big vending machine in the sky. You pull the right knobs, you say your right incantations, and Jesus is your vending machine in the sky. And he is your butler who art in heaven. Our butler who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give me what I want. It really works well on television, let me tell you. But Paul tells us here, fundamentally, that is upside down. Who serves who? I am a servant of Christ. My favorite example of this is the Virgin Mary. I love her in the Bible. And when the angel comes to her and announces, you are with child. And we have the Magnificat, right? The Mary's song. What is the first thing she says? First thing she says. 
I am the Lord's servant. Isn't that beautiful? And the servant lives with the agenda of their master. This is an identity issue. Some of you are businessmen and businesswomen. Let me ask you this. I'll use the term businessmen. We have some wonderful businesswomen in the church. But let me ask. Are you a businessman who happens to be a Christian? Or are you a Christian who serves Christ in the business world? Huge difference. Are you a musician? Some of you are musicians. Let me ask you. Are you a musician who happens to be a Christian? Or are you a Christian who serves Jesus Christ with your music? Some of you are students in a school. Let me ask you something. Are you a student who happens to be a Christian? Or are you a Christian who has been sent by Jesus Christ into the school to learn and grow and to serve him there? What do you think? Can you understand how crucial it is to get this identity right? Yes, John, this is so radical. It is radical. But the beautiful thing about it all is that when Jesus came into this world, he came as a servant. And in Isaiah 53, we are told about the servant of the Lord, that he is the suffering servant. And it says that he took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows and that our iniquities crushed him. That's what our servant came to do for us, to carry our sorrows, to carry our infirmities, our weaknesses, and to be crushed by our sins. And while he walked this planet, he knelt down in front of his disciples, and what did he do with that towel and the basin of water? What did he do? He washed their dirty, stinking feet. He washes you. And Peter, he says, Peter, I don't just wash your feet. I wash all of you. I make you clean. And so he died, and with his blood he cleanses you. And Carl mentioned Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 14. It tells us that the blood of Christ then purifies our consciences from dead works so that we may serve the living God. And so you sang earlier that prayer, let me be your servant today, Lord. Let me be your servant today. In all that I do, in all I say, let me be your servant today. And it brings us back to the beginning. Do you want to please men or please God? Do you identify yourself as a servant of Christ? And what do you do? Have you received the gospel of Jesus? Yes, yes I have. Then what do I do? It's the gospel I preach. You don't need to come to this pulpit to preach, to share the gospel on Sunday mornings. Wherever you go, you are the light of the world. Take the light of Jesus Christ with you. Go as his servant. Fear no man. Yes, be at peace. Don't be obnoxious. Be gracious. But fear no one. You have the message of Christ in your heart. And today, maybe today for the first time, you would say, 
I want to know Christ. I want to be assured that my sins are forgiven. I want him to wash me of all my sins. And this is the day for you to humble yourself and to say, Lord, make me clean. I trust you as my Lord and Savior. Would you do that today? We're going to bow our heads. We're going to pray together now. And we're going to commit, uh, invite him to do some business with us. I, I, I really believe right now every one of us would do well to invite the Lord to do business with us. Where are there fear of man issues in your life? Confess them to him. Where have you forgotten that he has served you and so now you are his servant? Just confess that. Thank him that he even forgives these sins. He forgives you as you repent and turn and come to him. He forgives you. Why? Because he has already served you. There on the cross, rising from the dead for you. And right now, do you know someone who needs to hear this life-giving message? Just in your own mind, name them. Who do you know that needs to hear this? Lord, I'm afraid to tell people about you because I'm afraid they might reject me or might not like me, but I have heard from your word here today that I should not be afraid. Instead, give me sweet courage and love and eagerness to share your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close.